administrations do use levers to achieve policy goals. For instance, one of the battery you know, manufacturers that we invested in is one of the very few bankruptcies that we had out of the like 7,000 investments that we made. Um, it was a company called A123 and the Chinese Picking wanted to buy Picking winners and losers. It. More, so many losers. <laughs> the Chinese wanted to buy it. Um, we, and- we used to say on the Republican side, they don't pick winners and losers, they just pick losers. <laughs> President Trump may tap war measures to bail out coal and nuclear power. What are the political implications? Arizona just saw an unusually tight race. Did views on climate change play a role? And the Climate Solutions Caucus just added two new members, a sign of growing consensus or political greenwashing. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environment politics in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and I'm joined here, as usual, with our Democrat and Republican co-hosts. We have Brandon Hurlbut, co-founder at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, a former White House staffer under President Obama, and a former chief of staff under Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. Then we have Shane Skelton, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, former congressional candidate, and a former energy advisor to Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan. Before digging into this week's episode, I wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's listened so far. We really hope you're enjoying the conversation. We can't wait to bring you more great content, particularly as we head toward this year's midterm election, where energy and climate issues are bound to play a role. And share it with your friends. And share it with your friends. If you're liking it, we hope that you'll spread the word. Speaking of great content, uh, we'll soon be integrating guests on this podcast. Starting next week with Terry Tamminen, CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. He also served as Secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency under Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we'll be speaking to Terry next week at GTM's 11th Annual Solar Summit in San Diego, where we hope to meet some of you. Brandon, you've met Terry before. What should we know about him and what can he bring to our conversation about politics and climate? First time I met Terry, I had just become chief of staff, and I got to go to this lunch um, at George Schultz, who's a famous Republican. He was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, you know, older titan of Republican politics. So it was George Schultz, Secretary Chu, me, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we were able to talk uh, clean energy politics. Did you get his autograph? <laughs> it was pretty Terry's cool. Terry's you're talking about, right? <laughs> Ter- I mean, Terry's autograph. Yeah, you're you at lunch it? with the Terminator. It's pretty cool. Like Talking about clean energy with the Terminator was a highlight. So the clean energy was a thing for Arnold at that yeah, time? Yeah, and Terry was clearly his right-hand guy, and so this will be a really fun conversation. Well, Brandon, when did you become chief of staff? Because Arnold was developed on the issue at that point, right? He was really into it? Yes, this was 2011. Early. Yeah, Shane, what would you want to put to Terry when we talk to him next week? What I really, you know, would love to hear from Terry, having been focused on the policy outcomes all along rather than winning elections, working for Arnold Schwarzenegger, was climate an issue that he sort of latched onto because it's California, climate politics are important. It's a really good way to get in with the sort of halves of the political scene and the donor scene. Um, And then he grew to love it out of that sort of original political commitment. Or was it something that he came into office really excited about, wanting to combat, and a passion that he had that grew uh, throughout his time in office? And, And then Terry, having been there, having a front row seat and being responsible for implementing some of these policies, what was that ride like and how did that get him to where he is today at the DiCaprio Foundation? Right. I think that'll be interesting to hear from Terry is how he straddled these two worlds of, uh, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, who was still Republican while active on climate, and now in this super progressive world of climate action led by celebrities and others. Can't wait to sit down with Terry next week. 
For now, though, let's kick into this week's episode. We're going to start with an election update. We just saw that Arizona had its special election this week, where the Republican won by a very small margin, which is pretty outstanding given that this is a hardcore Republican district. Brandon, what did you think of that? Is this your blue wave coming prediction coming true? This is further evidence. I told uh, Shane in our inaugural episode that the blue wave is coming. And uh, this is a district that the Democrats had no chance in. I mean, the demographics are horrible for us. It's basically really old <laughs> white people, um, which is not our demographic. And so the Democrats didn't invest in this and the Republicans had to invest significant funds uh, to hold this seat. And so to me, it's it's real evidence, again, that the tide is, is in the Democrats' favor. Um, but there was very stark contrast in climate energy in this race. As a reminder, Debbie Lesko is the winner there, the Republican, and Hiro Tipperneni was the Democrat, who came within four points of winning. This is a district that Trump won by over 20 points. I think it was close to six, but yeah, I mean, I think we're splitting hairs when we're comparing it to 20, and and I think 26 for Trent Franks, who ran for re-election in the last cycle. But what is interesting for our purposes is how these candidates came down on climate issues. They were asked in January whether or not they believed in human-caused climate change. Brandon, you highlighted this point. What were they saying? The winner, Debbie Lesko, said, is some of it maybe human caused? Possibly, but certainly not the majority of it. I think it just goes through cycles and it has to do a lot with the sun. So, no, I'm not a global warming, global warming proponent. I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) Um, The science is maybe a little lacking in that. And and I can tell you guys, as someone who's who's tried to run for office before and and involved in this issue from the Republican side, it's mind numbing because, you know, forget about your position on climate. And Julia, we went back and forth on this in the past about, you know, do you have to agree on the problem to talk about the solution? Arizona is sunny all the time. I realize that's a, a really you know, dumb point of view. But seriously, it's a place where you can really get a lot of benefit from solar power. And so if you're running for any public office there, it makes perfect sense to me to say, well, let's talk about what we can do about it. How do we solve climate change? We produce zero carbon energy and Arizona is the best place to do that. We can create jobs. We can draw investment to our communities. Uh, we can really, you know, we can clean up our air. They have ozone problems there just because of the dust and sand and dry air. So it was an easy softball question that you could take a clear political economic win away from and instead decided to go back and debate science. And I, I just never understand that. And this is what Tipper Nenny said. Uh, she said Arizona should be at the forefront of fighting climate change with amazing, innovative, renewable energy initiatives. We should be leading with solar power, wind power. This is something that not only benefits our concerns about climate change, but it would be great for job growth. Shane, you agree with that, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a Republican issue, and it drives me nuts when it becomes a Democratic issue. Democrats have owned climate change for a while, but Republicans own the economy. And this is a place where you can own the economy and then say, you know, one co-benefit of me growing the economy is that I'm also uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It makes me want to pound my head against the wall that certain Republicans don't get that. Well, we don't know if this was one of the reasons why the race was so close, but um uh, I think that the trend is in our favor on this. Well, and, and, and people need to make this case because we don't know why the race was closed. Here's what we do know. Uh, campaigning on climate in Arizona, probably not a great idea. Campaigning on energy jobs and jobs in the economy in Arizona, always, always a great idea. And, and so it doesn't have to be about clean energy or climate. She could have brought a jobs message. And this election will be about jobs in the economy, like all elections. And I think that was an opportunity to, to connect the two. So we know Lesko is going to Capitol Hill, where she could join the Climate Solutions Caucus. 
Speaking of which, we had a question brought up by a listener on Twitter the other day, and thank you for that. We hope you'll all reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate, at polyclimate. So we had this question from our listener asking about the Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of House representatives that explore policy options to address the impacts, causes, and challenges of the changing climate. On Earth Day, just this past week, Representatives Randy Hultgren, a Republican from Illinois, and Ed Perlmutter, a Democrat from Colorado, together joined the caucus. One representative from each party has to join at the same time. Like Noah's Ark? <laughs> like Noah's Ark. Two by two they go. Shane, what do you make of the Climate Solutions Caucus? Do Republicans care about this? Could it actually hurt Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill when they join the group? I think there was initially some concern that it could. I mean, I think as anything grows bigger, it becomes a little bit more amorphous and sort of what it can be used for uh, is both, you know, in a positive and negative way. Carrying more votes is always a good thing in Congress. Um, having a larger group necessarily leads to more compromise and sort of less concentrated issue focus. So, I think early on, you know, they were keeping the names of their members private, and that was a good faith effort to have serious conversations about climate, clean energy, and solving these problems. Um, when you have an issue that's politically charged like this, I think it's really difficult to get Republicans in the room because they don't want to be then in a primary where someone's saying, hey, I'm here fighting for our conservative principles, and the guy you sent to Congress is, is negotiating, you know, a climate, a carbon tax or some sort of, you know, climate cap regime. So early on, I think that was the case. Now it's funny because I talked to Republican and Democratic offices, and I met with Climate um, Solutions Caucus staff last week when I was in D.C., and people genuinely view it differently. And I don't think there's anyone being dishonest. I think from the Republican side, they're saying we're making a genuine effort to work with our Democrat colleagues. And I think the Democrats in the, in the caucus believe that as well. And we want to move the needle. And we understand that you can't have everything that you want, but we all want to work together to get something that you want. But if you talk to, to some climate champions uh, who are not in the caucus, they say, you know, this is cheap greenwashing. It's a way for Republicans to have it both ways. They can vote for the bills that they find to be convenient or sufficiently conservative back home. But then, you know, for those constituents or those interest groups who say, we think this is a real problem, you can say, yeah, absolutely, I do too. And um, and I'm a member of this caucus. So I, I guess the last point I'd make on that are their position in meeting with staff was we don't need all 72 members, 74 now, to agree on every issue. We need everyone here to have a conversation. And if you're, you know, against half of the issues that we stand for, but for half, we'll take your vote on those half. It's not all or nothing. That's been my view to climate policy all along. But as we've discussed on this podcast, uh, that's not everyone's view. Yeah, I guess it's great to have, you know, more wins than none at all. But it, I think a lot of people would say if you can't agree on an agenda in full, not enough is going to get done in enough time to combat climate change the way that the science is indicating. Brandon, what do you think about how effective the Climate Solutions Caucus is? I'm conflicted because I really want it to, to succeed. Um, when I joined the Obama campaign, I supported him uh, because of his speech where he said, uh, you know, it's not red America or blue America. We're all together. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see both parties come together to solve what I think is the most important issue of our time. Um, but, you know, when we got into office, uh, a lot of people think that maybe Hillary Clinton was right. Her attitude was, you know, these guys are never going to join you. You just have to beat them. And I think there is this concern that it could be greenwashing and that they're voting anti-climate to satisfy their primary voters and to make it out of the primary. And they use the fact that they're in this, you know, climate caucus in the general election to win over swing voters because most of these members are in 
the swing districts, the competitive districts. One of the members of the Climate Solutions Caucus introduced a bill to, to eliminate the EPA. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, um, you know, Perhaps whether, not the most Yeah, what's the friendly. threshold to get into the Climate Solutions Caucus? <laughs> well, that, no, that's a good point, Brandon. And that's what I was alluding to a little bit earlier is that there are members of the caucus who you could look at their track record and say, this is not someone who, you know, belongs in the Climate Solutions Caucus. But the point that I heard from staff was, if we have these members who maybe aren't all about climate change, but they can deliver eight or 10 votes for us, like, that's great. That's what we're trying to do in passing bills. And I think what we do know for sure is, you know, whether or not every member of that caucus is committed to solutions or not, you will never find any solution to a large environmental problem or climate change without bipartisan support. I mean, you look at the early Obama years and you guys had a very supportive president. You had 60 votes in the Senate and a majority in the House. You got health care done and couldn't get cap and trade done, couldn't get anything done on the climate side. Then you got, you know, Nixon responsible for the Clean Air Act, George H.W. Bush responsible for the amendments. And I'm not trying to make the argument that Republicans have always been pro-climate and Democrats haven't. Just the point to that if Democrats are always there, to get things done, you need Republicans to come along. And and I think when we look at stuff like the electoral map in 2018, people need to decide, like, do you care about issues or do you care about the letter next to your name? Because if you want, you know, a wave and we always do on our side, I'm sure you do on your side, like, great. You might take Congress, you might take the White House, you know, two years, but that is not the same thing as finding solutions to climate change. And so if you really want to get the policy done, I'd identify candidates of both parties who are pulling in your direction. That's how you're actually going to get progress, I think. I like that. I, I just want to see them do something. At this point, they they haven't done anything. It's interesting to hear how each member became a member, though, like especially in Miami and Florida, where the effects of climate change are being seen. And like, it's kind of scary in some ways, but that's really made it resonate. And so maybe to Shane's point, this isn't just about politicking or about greenwashing to get some green credentials. These politicians are really seeing this impact their districts in real ways. And maybe as that happens more, as sad though it may be, hopefully it's not disastrous changes, but hopefully as it becomes more apparent, we'll see more lawmakers get on board and the solutions will become more obvious from that point forward. I think we are still at the the bleeding edge of of this bipartisan movement. And Julia, I don't want to name check a staffer without their permission, so I'll I'll leave it generic, but your point is spot on. What What I was told by a particular staffer about his boss's support for climate legislation was, you know, look, we're in Florida. And if you guys think the mortgage housing crisis was an issue, wait till you see the climate crisis. Because in the mortgage crisis, homes lost their value. They didn't become worthless. If we have rising sea levels and we actually wipe out uh, entire communities, you didn't lose 30% in your house. These properties are completely destroyed and it's over. So we really believe that this is the insurance policy against that. And I think that's an interesting perspective. And that's a Republican office. I think it's interesting to note one particular member, Ryan Costello, who, Brandon, you mentioned in our very first episode because he has some support from ClearPath, a conservative Republican group that backs pro-climate Republicans. Ryan Costello had the support of that group. He actually just decided not to seek re-election. He he knows the blue wave is coming. (laughs) Maybe he knows the blue wave is coming, but I don't know. What do you... Either his climate position played a role, it wasn't resonating, or at the very least, it wasn't doing him any favors. Interesting to note, though, that at the very least, she'll have one less caucus member as of next year. So what does that mean? It's certainly not winning elections for Republicans. No, and and will it? Like, a lot of it's geographic. There are certainly some areas that are battlegrounds that might lean right or might lean left, and a candidate with the right policies and the right sort of attitude can win. Uh, But if you're certain... Areas of Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and I don't mean all areas, but certain areas of those of those states, um, 
even if in your heart of hearts climate change is a serious issue, you can't go stump against coal. I mean, you just can't do it. Look at the state of West Virginia over the last like decade or two. It was a democratic stronghold at every single level of government. And then all of a sudden, climate change became an issue in the forefront and regulating power plants. And that's the reddest state in the union. There's an interesting candidate in West Virginia, actually, Richard Ojeda, who is a former army guy. And he's a progressive Democrat, although people are saying he's the Tea Party liberal because he's a pro-coal guy. He understands where his state is coming from. And his real campaign promise is to get jobs back, that sort of original Democrat union kind of attitude. So it's interesting to see where a candidate like him will play into these elections later this year. So we'll leave it there on the Climate Solutions Caucus for now. We'll try and get on some members on this show. I think that'd be great to hear directly from them as we bring more guests on. And as I mentioned, reach out to us on Twitter. Tell us what you want us to discuss. The handle again is poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Next, let's turn to our main subject of this show, energy winners and losers in Trump's America. To kick off this discussion, I wanted to go back to the State of the Union address, where President Trump insisted he had ended the war on beautiful, clean coal. At that time, it almost seemed like a throwaway line. Most people in the energy industry, from both red and blue states, I'll add, were saying that there's virtually no way to bring back coal, at least not immediately, because the economics just are not there. And I don't think anyone considered the lengths that the administration was willing to go to to follow through on that campaign promise. Now we've learned that the Trump administration is looking to invoke sweeping authority under the 68-year-old Defense Production Act, which allows the president to effectively nationalize private industry to ensure that the U.S. has resources that could be used in a war or in the event of a disaster. And this was revealed in a Bloomberg article according to four unnamed sources, so we should note that. What's interesting here, assuming this is accurate, is that This is the third attempt the Trump administration has made to try and effectively bail out existing coal and nuclear plants. The Department of Energy had a proposal to subsidize some of those facilities, and it was rejected by a federal regulatory commission in January. Then we had First Energy Corp., a utility that owns a bunch of coal and nuclear plants, seek an emergency order to guarantee profits for those facilities. Uh, And we don't know yet how the DOE is going to rule on that. Secretary Perry of the Department of Energy indicated that it probably wasn't the best method, but we don't quite know how that's going to go. So here we come back to this Defense Production Act, which is really, again, for war times and disaster scenarios. Brandon, what did you think when this idea got floated? This is just another example of Republican hypocrisy. Uh, When I was in the administration, Uh, Republicans accused President Obama and and us at the Department of Energy for picking winners and losers. Uh, We actually didn't do that. Uh, When we had the Recovery Act, we invested, you know, $30 billion into, you know, new clean energy technologies. And this was because, you know, back in 2008, you know, China was moving aggressively, Germany was moving aggressively, and the American, you know, economy had collapsed and the financial markets had collapsed. So none of these new technologies could access financing. So President Obama stepped in with the Recovery Act and we we didn't know who was going to win. And so we gave many of these technologies a chance and we, you know, we thought the private sector would would determine who the winners are. We invested in many different types of energy efficient lighting. We invested in many different types of solar. Um, and the winners, you know, have emerged, but we weren't picking one technology over the other. Uh, this is Trump saying, I'm picking coal, I'm picking nuclear. 
And this is, he's investing in the past. Solar, wind, and renewables are just a better technology. Well, that's maybe a political position though, right? You could say, hey, like coal is a position and I know I, that's a policy objective worth supporting. But yes, I accept your well, point. When the fuel is free and they're cleaner. I mean, I've, I've been trying to think of the best analogy for this. And back in the 1800s, we used to use gas lamps. You use gas and they lit. Remember, in the, like you'd see it in the movies. There's like a that's how they had their lighting. Yeah, their lighting so it was like cool a candle. And now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but then, then came in 1879. Thomas Edison invest in, invented the electric light bulb, and it took a little bit of time. You know, in like 1880s, it was like only the tech savvy, wealthy people that had it. And then in like 1890, seven and a half million light bulbs were out there. And then in 1909, 66 million light bulbs were out there. And then it just it just evolved and took over. And so, yeah. So no one's going to be surprised that I'm disagreeing with everything that you have to say. But <laughs> but but I'm, I'm going to use your uh, your example. Um, back then, it just made sense. Things changed out when they were ready to. I think I think the reason that Republicans, including this one, believe that the Obama administration picked winners and losers is because the market was going to rule coal out. It was going to happen. That I mean, that sh- low cost natural gas, renewables are becoming more affordable. The problem was. The Obama administration, through a series of regulations, uh, mercury air toxic standards, which I think we all agree are, are a good idea, but the clean power plan, a whole host of different things at once, retired them earlier than they should have been retired and before the new technologies were ready to fill it and scale. Now, we talk about the Defense Production Act. Totally absurd. Agree 100% totally absurd. But the Obama administration used it to advance biofuels. The last time it was used was not during the Cold War. It was used by President Barack Obama on the Great Green Fleet when they were trying to switch uh, the Navy from real fuel to to non-existent biofuels. And the price went from like $3 a gallon to like $38 a gallon in what they had to do. So it actually hurt the Defense Department significantly when you looked at the budget. And and so my only point is that uh, it is a bad idea. But it's always a bad idea, right? No matter who's doing it. Picking winners and losers is a bad idea. I think we would have seen natural gas come up. I think we would have seen wind and solar grow their markets but without not as shutting fast. down coal. Not as fast. And I guess that's the challenge, And that's right? what we're competing with all these other countries. They see the market opportunity as well. If you can produce electricity uh, in a cleaner way that's cheaper, there's going to be so many jobs and economic opportunity associated with that. And you know, why not help accelerate that like we've done with many other technologies in the past? I don't necessarily disagree, but that is picking winners and losers, determining that there is a better way to do it and then phasing out one and choosing another and financing it with government money. Now, I, I where I agree with you is that ship has sailed. We don't get to go back eight years and sailed say- Sailed on green, clean biofuels. Well, no, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> yeah, I mean- put it, put it ahead. You don't it's get to go back It's sailed on coal. Say, this is like investing in telephone operators. You know, I agree. I mean, I think- in my perfect world, none of that would have happened uh, from, you know, roughly 2008 to 2016. <laughs> but um, but it did. And so to now say, hey, let's dust off any old law we can find to try to bring coal back into the mix. I think what people are missing is it was retired earlier than it should have been, but it was retiring. I don't think there was a world whereby coal was the dominant electric fuel source uh, going 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years out into the future. You could make the case that Obama, he came up with the term all the above energy. And now it's kind of been brought squarely into the Republican camp. Um, And they did take steps to support natural gas, which, Brandon, you can probably speak to more. There was research on small modular reactors, um, maybe not so much going on with coal under the Obama administration, but they they did invest in a diversity of resources, and it just seems a little bit different to have these various 
steps one after the other to explicitly shore up existing power plants. Uh, that does seem to be different. It's not an investment in the next generation of technology, which the Great Green Fleet did, which could have real operational benefits one day. This is about preserving existing assets, particularly for one company, uh, which seems a little bit odd. So that's true. And I, I, Brandon has a lot more experience here. The one thing I want to mention on your comment, because I think it's important, is they understood the market impacts. It wasn't unknown. Like when, when the clean, uh, I'm sorry, in 2015, when the um, solar investment tax credit and the wind production tax credit, when they were negotiating an extension and a phase out, the reason they did that on the Democratic side was they said, look, with the clean power plant in place, that is a subsidy. So we're good. We just have to get to the point where the clean power pack, uh, clean power plan is in place, and then we don't need to be subsidized because we own the market by government fiat. I mean, they knew that. So it wasn't like, oh, here were some interesting ideas, and then, whoa, what happened? Coal phased out. That was the goal. It was well understood, and people knew it. Brandon, what say you? <laughs> you don't look happy over there. For, I, we forget it's a podcast, so I want everyone to see what I'm seeing yeah, right now. I wish you could all see Brandon's face. He looks a little defeated in this moment. <laughs> defeated might not be the word. Ready to bite my head off might be a better sort of descriptor. He's too nice for that. Um, what? So, Brandon, was Obama truly just trying to kill coal? Was that like a line that was being said? I think that we were for all of the above – um, because many people in the administration saw natural gas as a transition fuel until renewables could be cost competitive. Uh, but I think what we're seeing now is that renewables are cost competitive faster than anyone thought. I mean, you're seeing, you know, these power purchase agreements. When when I was at the DOE, at the Department of Energy, like a good deal was like tw- what they call 20 cents per kilowatt hour for a uh, solar contract to produce solar power. Now you're seeing these at three cents, right? Which is cheaper than natural gas. Uh, same thing with wind. So, um, you know, I just think that that these technologies are better and we should be incentivizing and growing those and not investing in the past like coal. What is interesting is that, you know, in his State of the Union speech, Trump mentions ending the war on beautiful, clean coal. And it is kind of interesting that Congress passed a really nice incentive for carbon capture in the budget, which ironically, under a Republican administration, you've had one of the biggest steps forward on, you know, capturing carbon from these uh, polluting power plants. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people were kind of surprised by that. Maybe that was a Democratic push to get that in there. Or maybe this is a true, honest effort at finding a path forward for their for the resource that you know, a lot of the country depends on for work. Well, you miss the back end of that, though, which is carbon capture and sequestration. Right. And, right so I think there are, there are quite a few Democrats and Republicans who support it, but quite a few Democrats who oppose it because what you're doing, two things, right? If you're successful, you're prolonging the life of coal, which is not something Democrats want because they're not – I don't mean all Democrats, I'm sorry – which is not something a lot of climate activists want and environmental advocates want because – it's not just about burning the coal, it's about mining it. So there are environmental issues on both sides. And then the sequestration, a lot of time, it's used for enhanced oil recovery. So a lot of proponents of CCS, it's not so much about um, we want to reduce our use of fossil fuels, it's about we can make coal um, more compliant with current environmental regulations, and then we can also enhance our output of, of crude oil. So I'm a fan of it, but I but I don't necessarily think it was it was only Democrats who were who were pushing that. One of my favorite Steve Chu stories 
um, was he had testified uh, in front of Congress and he walked out and there was this huge swath of reporters and we were in the middle of this, you know, the budget negotiations. Remember the sequester, Shane? Oh, yeah. So the sequester was – how would you explain the sequester? The idea was basically that um, Congress and the White House agreed to a top line, a top amount of money that we were allowed to spend. And if Congress ultimately appropriated funds in excess of that amount, whatever percentage that was would just be sliced evenly across the entire federal government. So this reporter asked Steve Chu, you know, Secretary, what do you think of uh, the sequester? And he went into this very in-depth explanation of the technology of carbon capture and sequestration <laughs> because he was so not political. He didn't even think about the sequester. I don't even think he knew what that was. Oh and it was like gosh. the top topic in all the political circles. But he loved to talk about the technology of sequestration. And so this like reporter's eyes was like glazing over. And then she came <laughs> over to me later. And she's like, I couldn't get a quote from him. Like, what do we do? This was, this was one of my favorite challenges with Steve Chu. He was not the most political energy secretary but he was the best that's funny i also just wanted to note though actually i remember that the trump administration's proposed budget going back to budgets uh of course this did not get enacted but it actually gutted funding for carbon capture and sequestration which is ironic you have the president talking about shoring up coal talking about using these war measures to uh basically bail out the resource and existing power plants and then in their own budget did not proposed to invest in the technology that would give this resource longevity in the long run. I thought that was it's totally at odds. So, I mean, we're, we're, we have a political podcast. And I mean, budgets are the most political documents ever. No one actually intends for them to stick. They look for places where they can claim, you know, savings against the deficit. One of my favorite examples, and I think- So um, that's the political move? Because if it was pure, purely political, why not ramp up funding? I'll give you a perfect example of why. Because you want to claim that you have a responsible budget. So one of the things that irked me, and, and I don't say this in a mean way, I actually always enjoyed the Obama budgets, was that they always cut stuff they love, or they that they love that we love too, knowing that we'd add it back. So then they could come back and say, hey, we tried to be fiscally responsible, but these Republicans keep plussing up these programs. One of the programs that I oversaw were um, the Clean Water Revolving Fund and the Safe Drinking Water Revolving Fund. That's you know how you help Flint get out of their situation. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the Obama administration is very supportive of those programs. We in Congress are very supportive of them. But the Obama administration would cut them by like $2 billion every year. And I know they didn't want that. They just wanted us to be responsible for plussing it back up. So looking at a budget, it's really difficult to discern intent. I looking think. at the proposed budgets from yeah, the president. The president's yeah. budget, not the actual congressional appropriations, but the president's proposed budget. Right, because we're talking here about in the actual bill, carbon capture sequestration got a tax benefit uh, and the president's proposed budget, the research in this technology was gutted. But to your point, it's and that's politics, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, it's another good example when, you know, back to this Recovery Act and the investments that we made, you know, we we had carbon capture sequestration incentives um, in, in solar you know, we looked at, we invested in uh, the technologies where you have the big tower with the mirrors, right? Now you're not seeing that, right? Because it wasn't as good as the as the PV solar. That that one, and the private sector has taken that and they're financing that and they don't need the government anymore to finance these big, you know, solar projects in the desert. So, um, you know, the winners emerged. We just gave everybody a chance. We weren't picking winners and losers. What's happening right now with Trump and this coal and nuclear action is that he is picking winners and losers. Is it fair to say that you were 
giving all solar companies a chance to compete against each other. It wasn't like you were saying, hey, here's a bunch of money coal, here's a bunch of money solar, let's see who wins. It was, here's a bunch of money, different kinds of solar, let's see who wins. Well, it was solar, it was biofuels, it was wind, it was different types of energy, you know, efficient lighting. Um, so it was, you know, many different technologies. But environmentally friendly ones. Yes. And, and again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just making the case that it wasn't, hey, market, fight and see who wins. It was, we want to change the fact that the market's being dominated by fossil fuels. And so, hey, non-fossil fuels fight and see who well, wins. Well, it, it was competitive in the sense that you had an established industry. Coal didn't necessarily need help at that moment. So who could get ahead on the next generation technology? Humans always want to iterate. So I think that's why it made sense to pour money into the newer solution. It's what we did with airplanes, semiconductors. We have a long history of you know seeing where our market's going to go and wanting America to own that market. And you know people want cleaner, cheaper energy. And the Chinese see it, the Germans see it. And if we are going to continue to invest in the past like coal, you know, we're going to lose those markets to our, you know, foreign competitors. I do want to ask you about nuclear though, Brandon, because you're at the Department of Energy. It actually oversees a huge nuclear portfolio, a lot tied to the defense and weapons related um, sector, which I think a lot of people forget or don't even know. Um, Is there not... Which is scary with who's in charge right now. (laughs) (laughs) He did want to eliminate the department at one point, Rick Perry, but he's now leading it. Um, So is there not a case to be made for nuclear? Say take coal out of the equation. Is it not good for the U.S. to maintain expertise in developing those power plants, developing new ones, maintaining existing ones, because it has crossover with uh, defense-related elements of this technology? Yeah, that's a debate that we were very much engaged in at the Department of Energy. You know, nuclear is carbon-free. the traditional nuclear is just not going to get built because it can't compete on price with things like wind, uh, solar. There's currently one plant that might get built in the U.S., one traditional nuclear plant. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm not I'm not optimistic. Um, but, you know, there's I'm always for government research into new technologies that can advance carbon free. And so if if, you know, the people can come up with these small modular reactors and if they're safe and they produce carbon-free electricity and it's cheap, you know, I, I don't see why we wouldn't want to be, you know, keeping all options on the table to deal with climate. We can't, you know, this is the most, as I said, this is the most serious issue of our time. We don't want to, we want to take every single angle we can at this. Yeah. And to be fair, I did see a Trump administration um, official, a DOE official. I do believe he'd been at the Department of Energy for some time, uh, but he had a whole panel at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit, all with these advanced nuclear technologies, these smaller reactors that you're talking about. And they've made it a strategic priority. So it is important to remember that uh, the Trump administration is diversifying its support for this resource. It's not just about the big power plants, um, although they are clearly very interested in shoring those up too. And, you know, there's there's government research into that. Uh, but that's different than private investment. If I was betting on the right technology, you know, I'm betting on solar and wind. I started this discussion talking about Trump's priorities that he laid out in the State of the Union. And in that same speech, he also said that America has finally turned the page on decades of, quote, unfair trade deals. Uh, so we now know how that's come into effect. Trump has put tariffs on steel and aluminum, on washing machines, and also on imported solar panels. That has been super controversial in the clean energy industry because two U.S.-based companies, U.S.-based solar manufacturers, 
brought this petition uh, seeking to get tariffs on imported solar panels, which really ends up hurting the U.S. installers and other solar companies, which make up the vast majority of jobs in the solar sector and responsible for the most growth. So you had the Trump administration put those tariffs in place, and then you had one U.S. company, SunPower, seek an exemption because they make their panels abroad. Interestingly, in the recent weeks, we've learned that they're going to acquire SolarWorld, which is one of the companies that brought the case in the beginning. So somewhat ironic, given that SunPower railed against SolarWorld and really opposed the tariffs being put in place. But now that they're here, they're going to buy their foe in a way, which a lot of people in the industry are saying that's a strange move, probably would not have happened in any other condition. And I actually spoke with CEO Tom Werner, and he pretty much said as much. This is stemming from discussions with the Trump administration, where they've expressed that they really want to see some U.S.-based solar manufacturing. And my read it was of it was kind of like, so bring us a deal, and we'll give you your exemption. Why am I bringing this up? There's an interesting political angle here. Considering the point that Jigger Shah, president and co-founder of Generate Capital, brought up on our other podcast, The Energy Gang, where he said this is the normalization of Trump. He said the solar industry here is kind of being told to kiss the ring, where sun power is being told to make a deal it would not otherwise make to get this exemption, uh, which he he said was really shocking to see happen in America, likened it to the kind of thing you'd expect in Russia, maybe under Putin. So what do we think of that? Like, are we seeing the solar industry scramble now doing deals they wouldn't otherwise do just to win political points? I mean, I think that's a naive perspective, not from you, Julia, from Jigger, in that this is the first time this has happened. Administrations of all stripes have policy goals, and they use the levers at their disposal um, to to enact them. I think tariffs are something that President Trump wanted to do. Uh, SunPower was one of, of 55 companies that applied for an exclusion. They weren't the only one. Um, and certainly, you know, as a, as a major importer, they were really exposed because if you have to pay an extra, you know, fee on every product you bring in, there certainly is some dilution value to manufacturing some of your products in the U.S. if you can. Uh, I'm not in a position to say, you know, that, that your point is incorrect at all, simply that it would be naive um, to say this is a new strongman tactic that the U.S. has never seen before. And actually, Brandon, we've talked offline about this kind of stuff, but in your experience in administration, because I've never worked in one, have you seen scenarios where administrations have policy goals and work with industry to get there? Here's what I would say. You know, Jigger's larger point about normalizing Trump, um, you know, is there are lots of things about Trump that have been normalized that are horrible, like lying. The, America, the president of America should not be lying <laughs> repeatedly, facts. you know, to the American people. And we have normalized that. I actually agree with Shane on this. This isn't the best example of normalizing crazy behavior by Trump. You know, administrations do use levers to achieve policy goals. Like, for instance, um, we had one of the battery, you know, manufacturers that we invested in as one of the very few bankruptcies that we had out of the like 7,000 investments that we made. Um, it was a company called A123 and the Chinese Picking wanted winners to buy and it. losers. More, <laughs> so many losers. The Chinese wanted to buy it. Um, we, and, we used to say on the Republican side, they don't pick winners and losers. They just pick losers. <laughs> Our success rate was like 99% uh, or 98%. Where's that um, last 2%? <laughs> you've heard about them all because they were in every Republican the ad piles of press us. releases if you want to know what those were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not getting your report card up on the fridge until you bring me that last 2%. By the way, remember Mitt Romney called Tesla a loser in the presidential debate. So that's how uh, good at Republicans are predicting you know, the winners. Um, 
so anyway, we we wanted an American company to uh, buy this technology because the American taxpayers had invested in it. And so we were really, you know, in a tough situation because the Chinese wanted to buy it, which would have been good uh, in the sense that we could resurrect this. But, you know, we preferred American companies. So we worked behind the scenes to try to make that happen. So there are these behind the scenes, you know, negotiations to achieve a policy outcome. I just think it's you know, if the policy outcome that you want here is to create more solar jobs, then this is the wrong policy because the tariffs aren't going to do that. You're going to save a couple hundred manufacturing jobs at the expense of tens of thousands of, you know, installer jobs, sales jobs. That's where the jobs are in solar. You know, First Solar, one of the competitors to SunPower, opened a new plant in in Ohio recently, and it's like almost fully automated. You know, they're using robot robotics to produce the sand the, to manufacture the solar panels, and so it's it's not the it's not the way to create solar jobs. It's an inconsistent policy to have say you're supporting solar jobs and then put tariffs in and then try to zero out budgets. They're all over the place on their policy. Yeah, and Julia, this is a place where there's bipartisan agreement, not just between Brandon and I, but also between almost every human being on planet Earth, that this is just a terrible policy. So my commentary earlier on on Jigger's point was that I think governments use the tools at their disposal to achieve policy goals. So my point was the policy goal may have been achieved, but it's a terrible policy, as Brandon said. I mean, you're in a situation where you've got somewhere north of 350,000 jobs that rely on these solar panels. And you know, somewhere near twenty or thirty thousand solar manufacturing jobs. It just makes no sense. And I and I, I want to be clear that not just, you know, in our conversations, but also in the polling that we've seen, almost everyone, whether you're the Conservative Heritage Foundation or, you know, some or, or the, the Solar Ener- Energy Industry Association or an environmental group agrees that uh, as Brandon said, whatever your goals, whatever you're, you know, using to get there, this is just the wrong policy and the wrong so, goal. On one hand you have you're slapping on tariffs to try to protect solar jobs. But on the other hand, you revoke the clean power plan. You're trying to bail out coal and nuclear. And his budget proposal zeroed out all investments, you know, or many of the investments for solar technologies. So they're wildly inconsistent. Well, doesn't make any sense. Trump does support solar in the sense that he proposed putting it on his border wall. And in that context, he said it was a good technology. So we don't want to paint it as though he has no respect for solar, which I actually, joking aside, like, I don't know that the Trump administration is anti-solar. I think this solar issue, you know, rammed up against their trade priorities, uh, sort of the protectionist leading trade priorities where manufacturing is a focus. It just happens to be that in solar, it's hyper automated and not many jobs there. Uh, oh, and I left out that he pulled out of the Paris, you know, climate treaty. So yeah. Like- well, they're trying to do that. It hasn't officially <laughs> been enacted yet. But yeah, I just I think there's a lot of political wins this administration's going for. They really seem to care about their campaign promises and their donors, which is maybe why they're going all these lengths to shore up coal and nuclear. Uh, I don't know if they actively care about solar, but they did campaign on trade. So here we had him taking a step on the tariffs, which could have been actually much worse. Well, I think that's where the politics get very interesting on this issue, because there are a lot of Democrats in Ohio and uh, other industrial belt uh, states that support tariffs. You know, there was, I mean, Joe Manchin, I think, you know, he was a supporter of this. Yeah. Yeah. It, tariffs have traditionally, at least in my experience on the Hill, been a, a Democratic priority, not a Republican one. And I, I really believed that these solar tariffs were not going to be put in place. You know, 
mainly because it, it's such a terrible policy that it, I thought anyone would logically reach that goal. But then also because this isn't something they went for. It wasn't like steel and aluminum where they said, here's something we want to do. It was a petition, which anyone's free to file. And so it, there would have been a very easy justification to punt it away. Uh, a friend of mine who follows trade much more closely than I do made a really interesting point and showed me how naive I was on this issue, which was uh, I could give you you know, a computer, some beer, and six days, and you cannot find one thing that President Trump has been consistent on his entire life except for trade, long before he ever thought about politics. This is not something that came up during the campaign. It's not something that came up since he was elected. He's been talking about it since the 80s. And um, and, and I, I didn't know that, but that was, you know, looking back at how sure I was that these solar, ter- solar tariffs were not going to be enacted. Then you start to think about, oh, yeah, this is actually the one thing that is absolutely a core conviction of his. Yeah, in one sense, you know, th- on the politics of this, if you think the election of 2020 comes down to six states, you know, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, supporting tariffs and trying to bail out coal, you know, could be helpful to him in those states. Um, you know, one interesting anecdote that, that I'll, I'll leave you with, at least in my opinion, on the coal plants. Uh, and I read this earlier. I wish I could remember who because it was a great piece. It was just a takedown of this entire effort. And it was really, really thoughtful. But, um, you know, in giving giving the Obama administration a little bit of credit here because I was knocking their great green fleet, the guy, you know, after making a really educated argument, made the point that, you know, one sort of rule of thumb is if you're looking at national security, let's see what the Defense Department has to say. (laughs) They haven't seemed to mention, you know, the security of these coal plants. And at least while I wasn't a, a fan of the great green fleet, that was a Defense Department priority, which gives it a little more weight in the national security space. Well, that's very nice of you. That's such a conciliatory tone to well, end you know, on. I mean, I think honesty is. You are wearing a shirt that says debate. "peace" in massive red letters. Like Shane has, he looks like a Democrat today, and I've said like I sense Democrat in him, and I'm, I'm going to turn him on this show. I just, I, you know, I don't see it, but I, I think because you guys like Democrats, I'm just going to feel like I look really handsome. You know, it like you're <laughs> I mean, me you look great. I mean, who doesn't like peace? Um, I wanted to quickly touch on on the solar on the solar front that you now have a bipartisan group of lawmakers who have introduced a bill that would undo the solar tariffs. Shane, what are you hearing about that bill? Does it have any chance of progressing? Yeah, I don't think it does. And I and I'd mentioned this to you before, Julia, when we were talking for an article you were writing. And and I you know I didn't intend to say right that that it shouldn't, just that it doesn't, because um, there's a couple things going on. One is this is a really robust bipartisan group, which would seem to be helpful. Um, this same group advocated these same positions prior to tariffs, which really would have been the time that a whim was more likely, right? If you had an outspoken bipartisan group of members of Congress from regionally, you know, regionally diverse saying, hey, this is a really bad idea, um, you know, that that should have impacted the administration's decision. It didn't. And so I, I think the idea is still good. I think if there was a way to pass this legislation and, and block these tariffs, that would be terrific. I, I think my largest... just veto it then? He could just veto it. And frankly, like they, you know... Congress could have done more. They couldn't have stopped the president, but they could have been more outspoken. And in a lot of the conversations I had at that time, because I was you know, very much hoping the tariffs wouldn't go into place, uh, what I heard from Republicans were, like, you're not wrong. We just don't have the bandwidth. Right now, we're scared to death about NAFTA. We've got to deal with steel and aluminum, which affects a larger share of our economy. And we just have to focus our efforts. There's only so much political capital. So I didn't hear anyone tell me, you're wrong on the policy. These tariffs should go in place on solar. It was, you know, your grievance is with the administration because we have such huge macroeconomic problems that we're dealing with in the trade space. You can't pick every fight. All right. Now let's go to our final section. If you can't say something nice. 
In this segment, we have our Democrat and Republican co-hosts share something that they recently found redeeming about the other political party. Brandon, you got to go first this time because you didn't bring one last week. I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to Christine Todd Whitman. She was the EPA administrator. She ran the Environmental Protection Agency under George W. Bush. And Time Magazine put out its Time 100 recently, uh, which is their most influential 100 people. I know this because Rihanna was in it, and I love all things Rihanna. Uh, But Christine Todd Whitman. Google alert popped up. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Rihanna. (laughs) So uh, Christine Todd Whitman wrote the piece uh, for Scott Pruitt, uh, the current EPA administrator, who is a Republican, of course. And she basically called him out and said, if you continue these policies, uh, you will be a threat to the environment, not protecting it. And so I think it takes courage, you know, from uh, one former Republican EPA administrator to call out a current one. And it's also evidence to me of how far the Republican Party has shifted to the right, because Christine Todd Whitman was a very reasonable you know, EPA administrator. And then we have this guy. Pruitt, who is a complete catastrophe. How did we get from Christine Todd Whitman to Scott Pruitt is a discussion I'd love to have with Shane someday. Yeah, there are some interesting signs I've seen from friends in Washington, D.C., where it's like we put the con in condo and then like Pruitt's face because he has this whole controversy around, I guess, renting a room for $50 a night from an energy lobbyist. Big day for Scott Pruitt coming up. This doesn't feel like we can't say something nice. (laughs) This doesn't feel nice at all. (laughs) He's got two hearings coming up. And by the time you listen to this episode, Scott Pruitt may be gone. That's right. Scott Pruitt will be up on Capitol Hill uh, testifying. Um, We'll see what comes of that. Um, You took a step toward, you know, being you know, friendly. So that was well done. I said thank you to Christine Todd Whitman, right. a Republican. Shame. Well, I'm going to say something nice because, you know. Because you're wearing a peace t-shirt. There's you, know, no, you couldn't possibly the kind be of guy I am. Um, yeah. brownie points. So uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth, who I know very little about, um, had a baby a couple weeks ago. And uh, she is a, a war veteran, a double, double amputee, for those who don't know. She had a child. Um And she worked with the Senate leadership of both parties to change Senate rules so that she could bring the child onto the floor, thinking uh, correctly that it wouldn't be fair for someone to not be able to do their job just because they chose to be a mother. So that was just terrific. Um, Hopefully that rule holds for, for future lawmakers. And I think anything that we can do to make it easier for lawmakers to both do their jobs and be human beings and, 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 and parents and family members. And Shane's the only parent in this crew. So he's, I have a special appreciation for it. Children have a really large carbon footprint, so we can't go there. I'm kidding. (laughs) Wow, I just threw a grenade in this conversation. You joke now, but that was was a Sierra Club campaign for a while. I I read a Washington Post article once. um, Literally, the title was, Can You Have Kids and Still Be a Good Person? As if the assumption was that you could not, Uh, which, yeah, another day. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling out a Democratic senator from my home state of Illinois. Yeah. And a quick note that uh, bringing it back to climate and energy, uh, the League of Conservation Voters, an environmentally active group, uh, gives Senator Tammy Duckworth a 2017 score of 100 on her environmental record. So she's a strong actor on climate and energy issues. 
And that is where we are going to leave this episode of Political Climate. You can now find our show on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, and on Stitcher, and on Google Play. And we'll hopefully bring it to other platforms soon, including Spotify. You can also stream it at greentechmedia.com. Thank you so much for listening. We're really excited to bring you this show. And we're looking forward to future episodes, including with Terry Tamanen next week at Solar Summit. Again, I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media, and I'm joined by Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skeleton, our resident Democrat and Republican co-hosts. Thanks again.